The Glenn Show is brought to you by the Manhattan Institute. Please consider becoming a paid subscriber at glennlowry.substack.com. As a subscriber, you will receive new episodes on Mondays instead of Fridays and get access to exclusive content, ticket pre-sales to live events, monthly Q&As with Glenn Lowry and John McWhorter, and other benefits. Your contribution will also help to fund grassroots initiatives that empower Black development across the country as we donate 10% of our profits to the Woodson Center. Thank you. Hey there, David. Hello, Spencer. How are you? Doing great. How are you? Doing well. Doing well. Uh, This is Glenn Lowry of The Glenn Show. Uh, I teach at Brown University, and I am John Paulson Senior Fellow at the Manhattan Institute. The Manhattan Institute sponsors The Glenn Show. Um, And this week, I'm joined by David Sachs, uh, who is a first-year law student at Stanford Law, and Spencer Siegel, who's also a first-year law student at Stanford Law. David, I have to confess, is uh, someone I'm very fond of. He's a friend, a, a former student, a colleague. We, we taught together. Uh, we spent two years developing and implementing a course on free inquiry at Brown, which I'm very proud of. One of the high points of my teaching career was working with David. Uh, and Spencer is a renowned first-year law student. Everybody says he's at the head of the class. I don't know where that came from, Spencer, but they admire you. The people I've spoken to admire you for some reason. <laughs> I, I, I wouldn't listen too closely to what they have to say. Uh, Spencer is an undergraduate at Stanford and has a master's degree from Stanford, is a first-year law student there. And uh, we're here to talk about what everybody is talking about, about Stanford Law. Now, a while ago, there was an incident at Yale Law School where a Federalist Society event was interrupted or disrupted or something, and I thought that was an anomaly. I said, you know, top-line law school, these kind of cancel culture, deplatforming things going on, that's not supposed to happen at a law school. Now, apparently, with the uh, disruption of the event that the Stanford Federalist sponsored in which uh, federal judge Kyle Duncan was not, in effect, allowed to present his speech, um, we're we're back to square one, it seems, on this on this issue of free speech in law schools. Um, But I don't want to prejudice the conversation. And you guys are are firsthand. Now, I take it that you're both members of. how they said openly members of the <laughs> Federalist uh, Society community at the Stanford Law School. Do I get that right? Yeah. Yes, uh, we are. Yes. Okay, so let me just ask David. What happened, David, out there? Uh, and uh, uh, can you just give us a reprise on, on the events? Yeah, so our society invited Kyle Duncan, a federal judge from the Fifth Circuit, to speak on... I think it's, it was guns in COVID in particular and social media, I think. And the Fifth Circuit is a particularly interesting circuit. Some call it like one of the most conservative circuits. And I think we all were interested in what he might have to say on those topics. Um, but oh, oh, a few days before the event, I think, these sort of these flyers started circulating, you know, um, to Kyle, Kyle Duncan, FedSoc, you should be ashamed, uh, including posters that, actually revealed the names and faces of our executive board. And they were posted around the, the, the courtyard, like around the law school. And basically, it seemed like something was going to happen. And so, you know, Spencer and I have slightly different experiences with the lead up to the event. Spencer went to the event early, 
Um, although the protesters, there was a big protest outside the event. They had already lined up. I witnessed some of the protest and walked in with Dean Steinbach. Uh, and then the event took place. And essentially what happened at the event was there was about 10 minutes of the judge sort of, well, Tim, our president, giving the speech. And then the judge was beginning to give his prepared remarks. And he was basically heckled at every at every sentence with with a mix of, you know, comments about his, you know, snarky comments about his judgeship, also comments that really didn't have anything to do with his judgeship. Um, and, and eventually the, the event evolved into and a somewhat heated exchange, I think is a mild way of putting it, between the judge and some of the protesters. I should also mention that the room was packed. Um, the FedSoc members, and also I think members who just in general went to listen to the event, were outnumbered considerably. Um, many people went peacefully. They just held up signs or they just listened and, and asked pointed questions in the Q&A. But, but there were some who heckled and disrupted the event. I think that's a, a start. Go ahead, Spencer. You want to add to that? Yeah, no, I think, I mean, David covered, I think, the opening, which um, I mean, personally, I can speak for myself and say that it was very disappointing to see so many of our classmates, you know, basically trying to shout down a federal judge instead of hearing what he had to say. Uh, but that that wasn't even the most troubling part of what happened, uh, because that was, uh, you know, like David said, about you know 10 to 15 minutes in when it was clear that the judge wasn't going to be able to give his remarks. Uh, and at that point, he asked for help from the administrator. And that's when Dean Steinbach, the, the associate dean at the law school for diversity, equity and inclusion, uh, stepped up to the podium. Um, she took the podium from uh, Judge Duncan, and then she proceeded to agree with the protesters to attack Judge Duncan's record, say that uh, his judgments had landed as a total uh, disenfranchisement of the rights of the people in the room, and that he should be listening and learning from them. And then she asked the, the now famous question, uh, is the juice worth the squeeze? Uh, and, and she essentially asked, she said, look, I, you know, in one breath, I believe in freedom of speech, but in the next one, but maybe when speech causes this much division, we have to ask if it's really worth the squeeze. Um, and, and it was at that moment that I kind of realized, wow, this is going to be a real problem when the person who's been tasked with actually ensuring that we have a space where free speech and discussion can happen is stepping in, not only taking a side, but then basically trying to get the judge to leave. Um, and so, you know, she did, she spoke for about six minutes. She took about six minutes of our longer event time. Yeah, perhaps longer. Um, and then uh, at that point, uh, the judge, you know, was allowed to take the podium again at his own event that, that we were sponsoring. Um, and then, you know, about half of the protesters left, but the rest stayed. And, and then there was a fairly contentious question and answer period. Um, you know, and to David's point, in fairness, there were several of our classmates who were there protesting who I thought, um, you know, acted well within the boundaries of what's appropriate. You know, they held right. signs, they asked difficult questions, but there were also a lot of people who I think went well outside the bounds of not just decorum and these, you know, uh, kind of high-minded ideals of, of, um, you know, politeness and civility, but but violated the, the rules of the actual university's speech code, and who insisted on interrupting, who insisted on shouting over answers that they didn't like, um, 
you know, and I, I think that that was really the, the rest of the event was this kind of shouting match back and forth. Judge Duncan um, was heated uh, by this point. And so really it just devolved into a shouting match. Um, and in the end, you know, the judge ended, ended the event when it was clearly, you know, there was, there was going to be no more rational discussion that was going to happen. Um, let let yeah, me interrupt ahead. just for a minute. I'll just say while I have you here, Spencer, I saw the video of uh, Dean of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Steinbach's response. She had prepared remarks. She was reading prepared remarks, man. That they blew my mind. That blew my mind. It, the, well, the worst, the worst part to me was that Judge Duncan, um, when she comes up, she had not introduced herself to him prior to the event. And she comes up to the podium uh, when he asks for help, and he says, all right, can we talk? She says, no, I want to talk to the room. And he says, why? I, I want to just talk to a dean. She's like, yes, I'm a dean. Let's talk together. And, and people are yelling, you know, at, at Judge Duncan, let her speak. They already apparently knew she was going to speak. Let her speak. Let her speak. Um, and then at that point, she, uh, you know, she takes out remarks, and he's like, well, really, are you going to talk? And he said, she said, yes, just because you asked. You know, I'm going to just answer your question. And then she starts reading from this, typed up page of, of remarks that she had prepared beforehand. So the whole thing I think was, um, I mean, the judge's words were, you know, it was a setup and I mean, it, it sure, it sure looked like it. Okay. Let me just tell the audience that we're waiting for David Sachs to rejoin the conversation because we don't want to waste time. We're, we're just carrying on here, but David will be back momentarily. Um, what's so bad about uh, Kyle Duncan? Was he appointed by uh, the Infamous Donald J. Trump. Is that the problem? Or is he a Christian? I don't know. I, I honestly haven't done the research on Judge Duncan, but what prompted this? Right. So Judge Duncan uh, was appointed by President Trump to the Fifth Circuit. Um, he is a Christian. So before before his uh, service on the bench, he worked as a litigator, uh, you know, most famously for the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty. Uh, so he did a lot of litigation um, you know, on the, the topic of, of gay marriage. And obviously that in itself is going to attract a lot of, of controversy. Um, but then I think most saliently to the protesters at Stanford Law School, uh, he also issued an opinion uh, as a judge in which he uh, denied a motion by a litigant uh, to use her preferred pronouns. Uh, it was a transgender woman. And so uh, that was, I think, uh, really the, the impetus for this whole protest. And, and it was really the source of, I think, a lot of the ire toward Judge Duncan. I see. Uh, was the litigant in his courtroom and the request was that he use the pronouns? Yeah. So interestingly, um, it's procedurally, I think, a fascinating case. Um, Excuse welcome me. Back, welcome David. back, uh, David. Uh, and we you. were just talking about how bad Judge Kyle Duncan uh, really was or wasn't. Uh, that instigated this kind of reaction to his coming to Stanford. And so uh, Spencer was just telling a little bit about some of his controversial actions while both before and after ascending to the, to the federal bench. Right. So, um, you know, the, the opinion, the, the procedural posture, I think of the case uh, is a little bit interesting. It's not something that, um, you know, if I were just reading the popular press, it wouldn't really be clear what's going on. But what happened in the case is that there was, um, an, an, an individual who had been uh, found guilty of, of 
child pornography. I think it was uh, like attempt to produce and distribute child pornography. Uh, I was a previous conviction for, uh, if I if I remember correctly, a previous conviction for um, you know some kind of like molestation or you know uh, something that had to do with uh, child sexual abuse. Uh, and so obviously it's a serious case, and, and this individual had been found guilty and, and was in prison. And while in prison uh, was when individual decided to transition, um, you know, and, uh, you know, a transgender woman. And so in that moment, um, you know, that was when she decided to file a motion with the court going back to change the name, uh, on the order that had put her in prison to her new name. And then, uh, in conjunction with that, she filed a motion, um, on appeal because the district court, uh, you know, the district court had denied her motion to change the name on the, uh, the order. And then, when she appealed, she filed a motion that uh, feminine pronouns be used as well. That's my understanding of the case. Um, yeah. Well, forgive me over here. I'm just uh, an economist. That doesn't sound like a, a hanging offense. Uh, I don't understand how the moral energy, you know, the kind of you endanger uh, uh, us, you, you, you offend us, you, you don't respect us. These are the kinds of sentiments that I saw uh, in my review of what happened out there. I, I don't know where that comes from because of if, if all that the judge did was what you described, I, I, there's something I'm missing. David? I mean, there was also, you know, his, his pre, before he joined the bench, his advocacy against you know, gay marriage. I, I think in a you know, in you know, legally adopting it. Although I perceive some moral objection as well. Um, I, I think those two things were what the the protesters took issue with. Is Obergefell in danger with this conservative Supreme Court? That's a direct question to both of them. Well, I, you know, I can go first and yeah. say, um, practically speaking, I don't think so. I mean, I think. Um, you know, a lot of people were really, uh, a lot of people at Stanford Law School were really concerned, um, you know, when they read, for example, Justice Thomas's concurrence uh, in, in Dobbs. Um, you know, I can speak personally, I, I'm, a, I'm a religious conservative and, you know, the more, I think even more importantly than that, frankly, I'm an originalist. And so I read the concurrence with great interest. Uh, but I think a lot of people were very upset and concerned, but, but frankly speaking, reading all of the opinions in Dobbs, I you know, if I'm going to read the tea leaves, no, I don't think Obergefell's in danger. I would agree. I mean, speaking as a, you know, a slightly right of center moderate who really likes gay marriage, I, I, I don't, I, I also, but also as, you know, the, the, it's something of a, something of a formalist legally and, you know, originalist leading, like, uh, yeah, I, Justice Thomas's opinion is interesting, but it's, it was not joined by anyone else on the court. I don't think the f there are five who would be gung-ho on overturning gay marriage, if that makes sense. Do you credit his concern that the legal reasoning behind the decision uh, was faulty in some of the same ways that the legal reasoning behind Roe versus Wade was faulty, and that that's uh, worth pointing out, even if you don't want to go back and undo the precedent? It's a perfectly legitimate concern, legally speaking. Uh, you know, certainly the substance of due process doctrine, to which I think Spencer takes a bit more umbrage than I do. But yeah, yeah, I, I mean, I'm not a huge fan either. Yeah, you know, it, it, there are there are critics on multiple sides, I would say. Yeah, I mean, first is Roe v. Wade, you know, people on the left and the right, legally speaking, you know, John Hart Ely, you know, were not huge fans of the decision and the legal reasoning. And Obergefell, it's a lovely opinion. 
uh, I really enjoy Justice Kennedy's quoting Cicero, who's my hero. But <laughs> I, 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 at the same time, yeah, it's not the best legal reasoning I've ever seen. Well, people should know that's why David Sachs is near and dear to my heart. The man <laughs> reads Latin and he reads Greek and he loves the classical uh, uh, Roman uh, literary figures. And you don't find that every day, man. You just don't find that every day. <laughs> <laughs> but I wonder how popular a stance that kind of appreciation of the classical canon is at the Stanford Law School these days. <laughs> I don't think uh, it's too popular. I mean, Spencer <laughs> seems to enjoy it when I mention the people again, like, yeah, some of our friends. But yeah, for the most part, people look at me like I have three heads. It's just fine. <laughs> okay, while you were away, Spencer and I were chatting, and yeah. uh, I was acknowledging that I had seen uh, the viral, I guess it must have gone viral by now, video of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Dean uh, Steinbach uh, encountering uh Judge Duncan at the uh, at the event. And the thing that I was most stunned by was that she gave a speech and it wasn't just a spontaneous speech. She was reading a text, which meant that she took an hour or however long it took to compose, you know, a thousand words or whatever. And and. Came in there, as it were, loaded for bear. So part me for wondering, what is a diversity, equity and inclusion dean? got meddling her, uh, who cares what she thinks about these matters with respect. I don't, I don't mean disrespect, but I just mean it doesn't seem to be pertinent to her portfolio. Uh, and uh, can, you help, can you help me understand that? She's representing the administration of the law school as she stands there. Uh, and yet she seems to be playing her diversity cards uh, as opposed to her, uh, this is an open forum where we can, we want to encourage debate and so forth kind of cards. Either you want to speak to that? Yeah, ahead, sure. Well, I, go, Spencer, yeah, go ahead. David? So I know I, no, I, I uh, personally, I mean, I said, I think this is pretty troubling. Um, as you mentioned, you know, at the you know, top of the show, I have been at Stanford. Um, you know, my wife likes to make fun of me that I've, you know, been here forever and I'll never leave. She expects me to, you know, sign up for a medical degree or something after this. Uh, so <laughs> I've been your dog Leland. I, yeah, I, my dog is named Leland after the university. So I, you know, I, I really love the place. Uh, I, you know, I like to think of myself as a, you know, an institutionalist. I really love the school, right? Um, but you know, I've been here a long time and I don't think I've ever seen a more uh, brazen or troubling abuse of authority by anybody. Uh, than what I saw at that event from uh, from Dean Steinbach, because I think that it you know it was evident from both what she said and how she said it, uh, and the context in which she said it. It was evident that Dean Steinbach sincerely believed that she was protecting free speech by promoting the the protest and by encouraging us as the people who had invited the speaker to reconsider inviting speakers of his ilk again and she encouraged the judge to leave and that was free speech and I, it was it was essentially an institutional uh it was an institutional endorsement of the heckler's veto and i'm i'm really heartened to see that judge martinez uh, has since written you know what i considered to be an excellent uh letter to the community it was 10 pages uh and i think it was really closely reasoned arguing 
against the heckler's veto and arguing in favor of a true you know, freedom of speech on campus. Uh, but in that moment, I think it was something that really every professor, every member of the Stanford Law School faculty and every member of the Stanford University community should be troubled by that. An administrator, you know, put the, you know, the, the stamp, the, the imprimatur of the university on this idea that we should cater to the, the, the crowd and we should let them dictate what speech is worth the squeeze. I think there are two things going on here, right? The first is, you know, the, the understanding of the First Amendment betrayed in that moment was faulty. Yeah, there is a right for the listener has been recognized in many decisions. The heckler's veto, you know, by Dean Chemerinsky at Berkeley, by Dean Martinez over here at Stanford, and it was a great letter, you know, it, it is not part of the First Amendment and must, it, it's in fact antithetical to it. Um, but the, the second value is, you know, even independent of the legal reasoning, which in, if you read Dean Martinez's letter, like it was, it was solid, you know, California, Leonard Law, you know, First Amendment writ large, it was, it was solid. But, but also just the value of the university, you know, Professor Lowry and I have, you know, talked about this and taught on this, you know, for a while. And, and you know, institutional neutrality and a Calvin report, which Dean Martinez cited, are, are absolutely essential. And, and, you know, free inquiry, reasoned discussion of multiple viewpoints in a civil manner, right? It, it's foundational. And in law school, you know, you know, it's one thing in college, although there it's, it's just as bad. And we need to foster, you know, values that, that support the Calvin report and institutional neutrality. But in law school, with, with adults who are going to become practicing attorneys who represent the best and worst and the right and the left of society, it's 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 really it was really quite astonishing actually, and when and so when the dean got up there and, and basically you know endorsed the protest and said you know it, it basically yeah you know, undermined Judge Duncan's points by saying that his you know that they have imposed direct harm on the students and that in spite of that she's welcoming him on top of the ten minutes of heckling I I just think that it really undermined it undermined the speaker and it made it very difficult for the event to proceed. I want people to know that uh, Judge Martinez is the dean of the Stanford Law School, the overall dean, and Dean Steinbach is the diversity, equity, and inclusion dean. Uh, and uh, what is your Dean Martinez first name? I forget. Jenny. Jenny? Yeah, Jenny Martinez. And uh, she issued an apology to Judge Duncan, as did the president of the university. And I understand that Dean Martinez of the Stanford Law School has met with not inconsiderable blowback for apologizing <laughs> to a federal judge that he wasn't permitted at a law school to deliver 30 minutes of remarks. Uh, it, help it, me understand that one. Again, I'm just a humble economist over here. <laughs> I, yes, it's... Uh... Something that you learn quickly in law school is that it's a mysterious place um, and things happen that you don't fully understand. Um, so Dean Martinez was protested for her apology um, actually right after her, uh, right, well, during and right after her constitutional law class, uh, which David and I both uh, are, in. are in this, uh, this past quarter, we were in. So, you know, the students protested. The, the great irony to me and watching them protest, you know, they, they lined the halls so that when she walked out, they were all standing. They wore masks that said counter speech is speech. They held um, 
you know, signs. They had plastered the whiteboard uh, with posters in the, uh, in the lecture hall, uh, as well as the lectern. And, you know, they, they were protesting the fact that there was an apology. Um, but the great irony to me, uh, you know, aside from putting the posters up, which we, maybe we could talk about later, but, um, you know, them standing with signs, with masks, you know, lining the halls, while it was troubling in a lot of ways, and, and frankly, I don't agree with the substance of the protest. But the great irony, irony to me is that if they had done that when Judge Duncan came, that would have been completely acceptable. There was no disruption there. They stood and they protested. They were seen, they were felt, they were heard. But they didn't disrupt class in the same way that they disrupted our event the week before, or I think it was two days before, actually. And so it shows that they they knew, right? They knew the difference between disruption and protest. Um, and that's, that's, to me, the great irony. You know, when they say counter speech is speech, the speech they engaged in that day when they protested Dean Martinez was indeed speech. That was, that was protect, a protected protest. But that is not the same thing as what happened with Judge Duncan. And I think that distinction is the whole point of this episode. And this is made clear, that distinction, in uh, Jenny Martinez, Dean Martinez's uh, letter, where she goes through the constitutional law issues of uh, First Amendment protections and Heckler's veto and so forth in great detail. I commend it to anybody who's interested in this case. Um, it seems obvious that there is a substantial number of students who have a view about what is moral and ethical and correct at our day and time uh, for uh, decent people to think and to do. Now, you guys appear to have run afoul of that consensus. I don't know your thoughts about every issue, but you are it openly, as I say, uh, members of the Stanford Federalist Society, and, and you're here right now defending uh, Judge uh, Duncan, et cetera. What's that like? I mean, how, what's life for a conservative legal scholar in an elite law school? Stanford has got to be number two, number three, something like that. Number two, you've overtaken Harvard. Yeah. <laughs> Bravo. But in any case, who's, who's counting? Yeah, who's counting? I mean, number two, number three, and the, the graduates are going to go off to uh, judge federal judge clerkships and to, uh, you know, junior associates at major uh, corporate law firms and to the staffs of senators and um, chairs of uh, congressional committees and et cetera. And I'm just wondering how it feels. Uh, forgive the kind of soft character of this question, but I, I'm trying to put myself in your shoes. And I mean, how do you, how do you show your faces? Your faces were plastered on posters. These are the bad guys who have invited this guy. What's that like? Well, it, you know, I mean, luckily we, the first of the first years did escape that it was, but it was the board of FedSoc. I think, I, I don't think they've had a great time about it, but I, I won't speak to their experience. I mean, you know, I, I tend to, I'm one of the, the, softer members of FedSoc, so to speak, you know, I agree with some of the substance of the protest, you know, like I, like I'm not, a, I don't agree that Obergefell like undermined our democracy or something. I think that's an overstatement, right? But, but I'm still conservative. I'm still branded as FedSoc. And 
luckily for me, and especially to speak to this as well, because I, you know we have different perceptions in the community, I would say. Um, but yeah, I, I have friends who are left of center and right of center, and most people are, are, are quite fine about it and even friendly. There, there are a few who, who, you know, the fence suck sign of the protest kind of, kind of emblemizes what they think and often how they act uh, interpersonally, especially after the event to my, honestly, you know, considerable sadness. Like I, I sense after this that there has been um, a bit of an abyss, as Professor McConnell wrote in the Wall Street Journal, that's formed people who I had previously, previously spoken to, like sort of barely acknowledged me. Uh, I don't know if it's because they're embarrassed because the behavior of some of their fellows was a bit embarrassing or because I showed up to listen. I, I can't say, but it's not always easy. And we, you know, FedSoc, there is, we are a bit ridiculed sometimes or looked at with some scorn, but overall it's not too bad. And ha- it hadn't been anyway. Spencer? Yeah, I, well, I think it's, you know, I think it's a good question. Um, I, I do think it's important to understand that there's nuance to it, like David said, right? I mean, the reality in my experience has been that there are a lot of Stanford law students uh, and students at other law schools that I've interacted with who are extremely open-minded, which I think is a good thing for someone who's going to be an advocate. Um, but there's a very vocal minority uh, who is not open-minded. Um, so I'm, I'm, a, uh, I'm a Latter-day Saint, so I'm religious. I'm a religious conservative. Um, member of FedSoc, and people know that about me. I think this is true, I think, of a lot of members of FedSoc around the country, but I know it's true for me. Uh, at the end of the day, I can go home to my wife and my dog and just enjoy my life, and I'm not as worried about what happens on campus, um, you know, and what people think of me, they're going to think of me. Um, but I'm going to keep trying to learn and, and, and pursue what I believe in. Uh, but I think that for a lot of students, especially those who live on campus at the law school, it can be a real struggle. Uh, and you see it, um, you know, there, there's this real social pressure to conform. Uh, and, I, and that kind of brings me to what stuck out to me about this whole thing, which is, well, interestingly, one of the remarks that the hecklers yelled at Judge Duncan um, was, hey, you know, you didn't get into Stafford. What do you know? And, and that, that stood out to me, right? He, so he, he went to, if I'm not mistaken, with the LSU, right? With the LSU yeah. Law School. Um, clearly he's smart, right? He's, he's, the federal he's, judge. he's, he's it, and it, it was an incredible litigator, you know, say what you will about the issues he litigated, but as far as his actual skill, he's an incredible litigator and now he's federal judge. Um, that, that really stuck with me, right? Because I think that, that sums up exactly what you were saying, Professor, about the fact that there's a certain hubris that, that accompanies this idea that, well, because I'm at Stanford law school. I know what is moral for everyone else. And I have the requisite judgment to determine what is and is not thinkable. What is, what is within the realm of acceptable conversation? Um, you know, my, my father didn't go to college. Uh, he works in construction. Um, he's, he's one of my greatest heroes. And, and I, I was thinking about that when they made that remark. I mean, who is to say that I... I'm a greater moral authority than my father who goes to work every single day to provide for his family. He's provided a life for me and my brother and sister that, you know, has given us these opportunities. Who's to say that, you know, somebody in, you know, whatever profession it is who didn't go to Stanford law school has less, you know, less of a moral authority than you because you went and you learned the law. 
I mean, and that, that I think speaks to a greater issue, which is this idea that because you've learned the law, you've somehow become, you know, the, the, this profound expert on moral theology and you can now, you know, tell us the alchemy of the universe and what is right and wrong. And, and you're going to determine that for us. I, to me, that's the most troubling aspect of this whole thing is that law students at elite institution who are going to go on to become not just clerks and not just, uh, not just advocates and, and associates at major law firms, but eventually judges. These are the people who are going to trust to, to adjudicate impartially and fairly. And for far too many, their temperament is one of hubris. And I, I, I don't think that's everyone. I think there's a lot of open-minded people at Stanford Law School, like David said. Um, but it's troubling to me as someone who is different and it doesn't always fit in with the status quo that there are so many people willing to just write me and my beliefs off as irrelevant, even though I'm at Stanford Law School too, right? That's the great irony here. It was a very telling remark calling out his law school, you know, the law school of the federal judge and celebrated litigator. The this elitism is Duncan you're talking pretty, about? Yeah. Mm-hmm. The elitism was pretty astounding. It was an emblematic moment. Well, there's this passage, as you will remember well, David, and as I'm sure you know, Spencer, in John Stuart Mill's On Liberty, where he says, it's not the magistrate that we have to worry about, the gendarme coming around and locking us up for saying something. It's the prevailing opinion and the conformity, the pressures to conform uh, socially. And so I'm just wondering, you guys are out of the closet FedSoc members, but there must be people who harbor more sympathy for your views than they're willing publicly to state. And I, I'm just, you know, I, I'm, I'm wondering about that because this is the opportunity, isn't it, when one is in uh, law school to to fully explore all the different dimensions of all the complex and nuanced issues that are, that are confronting the country uh, and, and the legal profession. So, I mean, can you, can you respond to this concern that I have that this is a tip of an iceberg of, of tacit censorship and suppression of argument that undermines the intellectual integrity of the entire enterprise? I think that's exactly right. I, so I have had... Throughout this quarter, and then even just the past several weeks, I've had several people come up to me after class in which maybe I made a remark or after uh, the protest and what happened. People have come up to me and said, hey, I just want you to know, I, you know, really think that you made a great point there. Or, you know, I really think you guys have the right to bring these speakers. I'm appalled by what happened. But, you know, I'm sorry for not standing up for you back there, but I don't really want to because, you know, it. I, I don't want to get crucified for this. So I'm, I'm going to stay out of it. I think there's an extent, again, to which FedSoc is kind of ridiculed and, you know, seen as like, you know, ooh, the FedSoc people, you know. I mean, I've, I've heard it. But but I think there's curiosity that might be tamped down by it. I, I know there are there are people who are, like, inter- certainly interested in our ideas, but who, you know, who shy away from any association. Um. And, and I, I think I think when you assume so much that your view is correct, it, it, it comes across. And then discussion with someone who's more more open to to discussion, you know, that person will probably react and not go there, and maybe not even think it's okay to think it. That's my experience with self censorship, and I think it plays out at the law school too. I'm interested in the aftermath. 
uh, I noticed in uh, Dean Martinez's letter that uh, she had made the decision not to uh, single out individuals for violating what were clearly violations of the relevant codes of conduct uh, for the reasons that she stated. Um, what do you think of her decision in that regard, if you're willing to say, and I understand if you're not, uh, and uh, what do you think should should have happened or should yet happen uh, to, you know, ameliorate some of the negative consequences of this unfortunate event? Well, I, you know, I can say, frankly, I, you know, this might not be a popular, this might not be a popular view on my, on my right flank, but uh, <laughs> I think she was right not to punish the students for the simple reason that, you know, I mean, something you learn in law school is that, uh, there's a real problem with punishing someone for a, you know, a rule or a law that they, you know, didn't know about or that they had been misled by the person enforcing to believe would not apply. Um, I think it's pretty clear that Dean Steinbach and the administration, you know, that worked with the protesters led them to believe that what they did was, was okay. And to me, the blame for what happened should rightfully land at the feet of the person who, who egged it on, which is Dean Steinbach. And I think blaming the students for that um, would be a mistake. I, you know, I think uh, if it's clear and people are, you know, are told beforehand um, that, look, if you're going to disrupt this event, there will be consequences and this is what you can expect. Then, then it's up to them to make their decision on what they're going to do. And, and the incentives, the incentives are clear enough that, you know, there's this, this, um, you know, this weighing process that they're going to make as they, as they approach their, uh, their, their choices about how to protest. But I, I think Dean Martinez was correct in identifying that in this case, it certainly looks like the protesters were not crazy to think that the university and the law school particularly were, were okay with what they were doing. Um, which I think, you know, moving forward, I think that just shows, I mean, the, the most baseline thing that to me it, it, it shows is that Dean Steinbach should not be in charge of free speech at Stanford anymore. Um, I'm not saying that she should be fired necessarily, but I'm saying that if I'm running an event, I'm not going to trust her to come and actually uh, defend our right to have an event on campus. And I think a lot of people feel like that, not just in FedSoc. Um, I would say, oh yeah, go ahead. No, I, I, just, I think that's a profound point about like sort of the referencing the two principles we learned about, I think in criminal law, rule of lenity and mistake. Um, but, but, I would just say that, like, I, I, on the lenity hand, like, I, I think this is a fraught situation. I think, like Spencer said, people weren't clear on the rules necessarily. And, I, you know, I, I also respect people's feelings in the matter. I, yeah, I, I, I think it would be, in this instance, a mistake to crack down. I think the risk, the institutional response is, is fitting. And I think it ho actually, hopefully, affords us an opportunity to come together, build some bridges, you know, cross the abyss. I gather that Dean Steinbach, Steinbach has stepped away from her duties, at least temporarily. What's the status of, is she being reprimanded or uh, I, I ask, you know? Yeah, we, we don't know. We know she's on leave, but that's all that we know. They okay. don't comment. One other thing I want to bring up here, uh, the estimable judge, Kyle Duncan, lost his cool a little bit, didn't he? Yes, got, yes. He got pissed off and he let everybody in the room know that he was pissed off. You think that, yes. with respect to him, was a mistake? Well, I could speak on this. Um, 
you know, to, I have a lot of respect for Judge Duncan, but I'll be frank that I think it would have been um, better for us if he hadn't, uh, because it would have made the point clearer. But I, I, I'll say this: I think multiple things could be true at the same time, which is that when Judge Duncan uh, got angry, that probably wasn't the best reaction. But also, he was provoked by blatant violations of the policy that would have allowed him to give his his speech. Uh, so I, you know, frankly, I, uh, I'm not going to judge the judge too harshly, um, or as I hope just came across the, even the protesters too harshly because they were led astray by someone in a, in a position of authority. To me, you know, I, reading the media accounts of something that you've been at really drives home the fact that the media sometimes in, in writing a story, they craft a narrative that's completely just divorced from what actually happened. And so it's been interesting to watch the media coverage of this. But the the whataboutism has just been astounding. There are, there are entire articles where the headline is, you know, federal judge berates Stanford Law School students. And that's all they talk about. And then there are other articles that say, like, you know, protesters yell down the judge. And then there are other articles that just talk about the Steinbach. But very few articles, I think, bring them all together. And I think that's the issue is that you can acknowledge that all of these things happen. But the only way to get to the, the heart of the matter is to see it all in context and recognize that what made this different than, for example, Yale, which we referenced earlier, where there have, you know, historically, you know, there, there was this event um, that was not too dif- different from this in which a speaker was shouted down and they've, you know, they've had their free speech issues that hopefully they've kind of overcome now. Um, but, what, but what makes this different than Yale's issue is that an administrator stepped in and it was a federal judge. And so I think that's that's what I think we should be talking about is the fact that the law school itself um, stepped in and, and condoned the the heckler's veto. That I mean, that's what makes this so remarkable. We know that students, unfortunately, we know that students will protest and that sometimes they'll cross the line. But what makes this different is that the administrator not only stayed silent, but then got up to encourage it. I would just add, yeah, you know, like, like I agree. I think it's well put. I, I don't, I, I think it's rich for anybody to, to sort of, you know, truly put themselves in the situation of the judge and say, oh, I absolutely would have reacted calmly. I would have addressed it perfectly. Like, it was pretty bad. I mean, because, you know, we were in the audience together, Spencer and I, and, you know, so we, we didn't see the whole thing, but the room was packed. There were signs everywhere. Some of the signs were totally legit, and some of them had, you know, serious vulgarity that I, I think would have, Especially somebody like I don't know the Christian faith, or you know, so, so, I think it would be upsetting. I, I I don't know, and like yeah, and the the, the sort of he can feel. I think I think I'm quoting Ish, like you know the utter contempt that they had for him, and I, I think when somebody feels contempt, you know they either slink away or they fight back. And I I, I Judge Duncan chose to fight back. Uh, would I have reacted the same way? Again, I, I I think it would be rich for me to say, oh yeah, absolutely not. Yes, he he did punch back. I think it wasn't great for us, but I, I understand where he's coming from. And he. I think it is very important to note that, like, he was really egged on. I also well, think and, it took... Yeah, but... Well, I was going to say, uh, I think it took everybody by surprise a little bit. Yeah, well... And, which was and curious. Just just to jump in to, to kind of follow up on David's point, um, you know, I just think it's important, uh, you know, I... I assume this is a family-friendly show, so we can't, you know, 
really do this, but I think just to give some some context of the weight of what was said. We have used um, the F word on this show before. Uh, just, just <laughs> you don't have to use it, Spencer, I, 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 but it has been used on this show. <laughs> I, that's comforting. I, yeah, it's a Sunday. I don't know. I'm they're trying to trying to stay yeah, clean yeah. here. No, it it um, it, uh, it was remarkable. Uh, just the the level, you know, the the degree of the the vulgarity that was used. Right there, there was a you know, a whole sign and a, a shouted question about, um, you know, Judge Dawkins inability to find, um, you know, a certain female sexual organ uh, that, you know, that was, uh, you know, shouted very loudly. There, there were a lot of discussion. Uh, there's a lot of discussion of the judge's, uh, you know, sexual impotence. And then uh, something that Judge Duncan explained in his, his op-ed, I, I didn't hear this because I wasn't there when he walked in, but apparently he said that someone yelled at him and said, direct quote, you know, we hope your daughters get raped. I saw that. So, so I think that you know, it's important to understand the level of, I mean, it's not even just contempt at that point. The, the level, um, you know, of the, just the, the invective that's being hurled at him at this at, the, at that moment. Um, so, yeah, I think it's fair to say that the judge got angry, that he lost his cool. But, you know, it, you look at you look at the, the uh, you know, verbal abuse he was, uh, subjected to, and I think he start to understand what's going on there. Let me offer this for your consideration. If a comparable event organized on the left were to have taken place, and a first-year law student was photographed in the audience holding up a sign for a gay rights advocate saying, F you, or you're a child molester, or something like that, that person would not be employable in any respectable law firm or, uh, you know, whatever, forever. That would follow them to their grave. It would be like appearing in blackface somewhere. Why not similar career consequences for people who violate norms of decency and uh, respectability, such as what you've just described? Uh, I can say as an economist, the incentives induced by such a social practice would keep people from behaving like that. <laughs> I think I think that's exactly right. I, uh, you know, I think that there should be consequences. I think that there should be a high um, expectation and, and not just an expectation, but a high um, standard of con of conduct uh, on the part of the university and just the legal profession generally. Um, but you know, we, we look at it, I mean, to even extend, I think you're, you're, uh, you're counterfactual with the, the, you know, if a liberal judge or, or a gay rights activist can, you know, how inappropriate it would be for us to protest that way and the kind of consequences we would face. If I said some of the things that were said just to a female classmate, that would be sexual harassment because it was, that's, I mean, that's what, that's what happened at Stanford law school is a federal judge came and in protest, the students sexually harassed him by shouting sexual vulgarities at him about him, his wife, and his daughters. So, I mean, that's what we're talking about. Uh, it, it, this wasn't some protest, um, you know, that was chock full of, of reasoned ideas. And if it, if it had been that, although, again, you know, I have my views on issues, I, a, a protest that's, that's based in ideas is, is, you know, I think essential to what a law school does. That's great. But that's not what this was. And so, yeah, I think that the inability to rely on reason uh, and perhaps the fear to even have an idea that you disagree with 
out in the air because you're worried that you're not going to be able to counter it with a strong argument. Um, I think that that absolutely does speak to one's ability to be an effective advocate uh, and to be an effective member of the legal profession, where our entire job is to make arguments and to confront all objections to those arguments, even the ones we find unpalatable. I think that's right. I, I would just say, look, I, some lenity is, is is appropriate. I hope that Dean Martinez's you know free speech conference, so to speak, at the towards the beginning of next term, you know, helps enforce rules of conduct that are essential to the profession. You know, I, it's just at the same time, I, I get it. You know, people have feelings. Their feelings, I think, in that moment in of you know group protest, shall we say, were were very raw and. I think they acted in a way that I'm sure not all of them were, were proud of it. And I, I hope, I hope they, you know, like the conduct improves going forward. I, I think it will. Most of our colleagues are certainly very respectable in that regard. Okay. Uh, what's next for Fed Sock Stanford? What, what, what have you got on tap? Uh, how has, how, how has your experience here affected your thinking about the role of the, organization at Stanford Law going forward, uh, if you want to share it without tipping your hand to your adversaries, uh, what's your next move? Well, I, you know, I think I can just say with absolute confidence that we're going to keep doing what we do, which is we're going to invite the best speakers that we can find. And, and, you know, historically speaking, I think that this is going to remain true despite the best efforts of protesters on campus. Actually, I think that the protest might have been counterproductive in this way. Some of the top uh, top talent and top uh, most you know significant voices in the conservative legal movement are now signing up and waiting to come to Stanford because they want to come speak to us, and, and that's what we're going to do, right? We're um, you know, David alluded to this earlier, but we're not monolithic. We we have a diversity of views within our Federalist Society chapter, um, and we're going to bring people that interest each and every member of the chapter uh, to come and explore those ideas. And we're not going to be intimidated or bullied into, um, you know, conforming with, with the status quo. No, we're going, we're going to challenge uh, ourselves to understand what different perspectives are out there, even when we don't even agree with them. Um, just because I think this episode has made clear that Fed Talk's really important to the law school, you know, to a law school who has only one conservative public law professor I think it's really valuable to have a different perspective on campus. And that's something that I hope, um, you know, is not left to us alone. I hope that the law school also, in the name of, uh, you know, diversity and inclusion, uh, starts to try to bring in other perspectives uh, at the faculty level as well. I think we play an important role in the marketplace of ideas at Stanford. You know, it's something that we've been, we were concerned about at Brown, I know. And the Federalist Society plays an important role, not just in that regard, but you know, look, it's a coalition of libertarians and conservatives who have sort of a range of judicial philosophies within that that most, mostly adhere to, you know, sort of history, text, and tradition. But, you know, there is some flexibility. I mean, it is not a monolith. And we've brought in great speakers, you know, incredibly intelligent judges, you know, who, you know, like, like Judge Duncan, like Judge Newsom last year, you know, and we will continue to do that. And I, we will continue to, you know, contribute to the intellectual, you know, wealth of our community. And I hope everybody who wants to attend does so and asks good questions. Could Justice Thomas come to Stanford Law and speak without incident? 
I hope he does. Please come, Justice Thomas. Please, please, please do come, Justice Thomas. I don't have it, an inside it, track, but uh, it should be known in the world that you guys would welcome the presence of Justice Clarence Thomas at the Stanford Law School. And wholeheartedly. Would, wholeheartedly. Yeah. Uh, now, I gather in lieu of any kind of uh, reprimand of individual students, uh, Dean Jenny Martinez has uh, mandated uh, some kind of uh, required uh, seminar or something on uh, the issues of uh, free speech. Uh, what do you think about that? Well, I think that, uh, you know, I, I'm going to wait and see what happens. Uh, we don't have a lot of details yet. Um I appreciate the instinct to do something. And um, although it's not really always true that doing something is better than doing nothing, uh, in this case, I, I at least appreciate um, the gesture and I'm hopeful. You know, it could be a really great event. Um, you know, to be honest, I am not entirely sure that the problem here was that students at Stanford Law School, who on the whole are very intelligent uh, in my experience, I don't think the problem is that they don't understand free speech. I think the problem is, I mean, to your point, um, Professor, I was an economics undergrad, but I don't want that to make you think I know anything about economics, but maybe at one point I did. But I can tell you that the incentives are out of whack for sure, um, where perhaps there's not only not incentives uh, to discourage, uh, not only are there not incentives to discourage this kind of behavior, but in fact, there are a lot of incentives that run the other way that encourage people um, you know, for, for social reasons, but also I think for professional reasons in certain ways to be involved in these kind of disruptive protests. And I think that uh, the law school just simply needs to enforce its policy. That at the end of the day is all it is. And, you know, what did uh, Justice Scalia say that you know, we need a, a rule of law, not a rule of men? Um, the law school, we just need to follow our own rules, which should be pretty easy for lawyers to do, you think. Yeah, I, I have hopes. I, you know, I think it could be good for everybody to, to, you know, get together and talk about free speech under sort of the awning that's articulated in Dean Martinez's letter, you know, the Calvin Report, um, you know, case law that very clearly lays out what's what and, you know, policy, you know, that again was very clearly laid out in that, that note. And I think she says, you know, policy will be put, put more strongly, you know, you know phrased more strongly in, in you know, weeks and months to come. And this event will probably be part of that. So, you know, I, I'm optimistic. I, I think it could be a good time for reflection and exchange. At least I, I hope it will be. Okay. You guys got anything you want to add? No, I, I think the big, you know, the biggest thing I would just add is that, you know, despite all of this happening and despite uh, the many calls I've gotten from friends and family, uh, asking, you know, what in the world's going on at your school? Uh, you know, like I said earlier, I'm still, I'm still proud to be, a, you know, a Stanford man um, through and through. Uh, you know, I've got my dog Leland who just, you know, walked under my feet, and, I, <laughs> I, and his name is not going to be changing anytime soon. Um, you know, I, I, you know, like David said, I'm optimistic. I really think that, I, I think that it's our obligation, you know, as students, but also as as lawyers to take the institutions we're in and to try to make them better instead of trying to tear them down. Uh, and I think that that's what we saw in the protest was this willingness to burn down the whole institution because you're convinced you're right about something. And I think that's really dangerous. Um, you know, I think that's really dangerous coming from an attorney because, you know, 
It's like a principal agent problem. Uh, an attorney is never the principal. An attorney is always the agent. You're always acting both. I think it's, it's twofold, both on behalf of your client to represent their views, even when you don't agree with them and represent their position, their best interests, but also to represent the law, not as it, not as you want it to be, but as it is, uh, you know, you swear, you swear an oath, uh, to uphold and, and support the constitution uh, and the laws of the land when you become an attorney. So that's, that's kind of how I look at it is hopefully we'll all work together to support this institution we're in and try to make it a place, you know, I, I think it's the best place in the country to be a law student, um, whether you're conservative, progressive, or wherever, you know, wherever else you might land. And I hope that that, uh, encourage, you know, that inspires all of us to work together, including, you know, people who aren't FedSoc members to try to make this a space that truly values a diversity of, of viewpoints. And that is the best place to, you know, explore those viewpoints in the country. Yeah, I, I would just I would just say that like, you know, Spencer got caught some friends and family. I mean, obviously I did too, but like many of my friends were at the law school and liberal who were concerned about what happened at that protest. Yeah, and and you know, and even people like even I was even even able to talk to people at the protest about it. And like they we had, I think, a productive discussion. Look, I, I, I wanna I want mutual respect. I, I it's you know, especially since working with, you know, you and John Tomasi, professor, you know, like I, I I, I really care about mutual respect in this whole thing. I think it's important to be kind and to respect each other's viewpoints, even when that does come to feelings. I would just say that, you know, Spencer's perspective from the law is entirely right. And I also think that, you know, legal realists might want the law to change, but you also have to, even with you are a legal realist, you have to deal with the law that exists and is now, right? And I would say also that Stanford remains a school. The law school is a great opportunity to actually encounter all of these ideas to think deeply about the law philosophically politically you know all the implications all of what undergirds it like it's a great opportunity to think about that and that involves a discussion that hinges as much as any university or graduate program on free inquiry and the free exchange of ideas right that has to be primary at an educational institution and that was, and and I think people are too ready to dismiss that. I, I know that I am not. And I think what got me the most about that event, because again, like I, you know, legal, like legal aspects aside, like I get where some of the protesters are coming from, especially like I'm a big fan of gay marriage. Like I said, you know, like I think it's great. But, um, you know, the, the primary value here is free inquiry and the free exchange of ideas in, in the, in the university. And that was just demolished. So I, I hope it, but, but, you know, D Martinez stood up for it. Uh, and I think, and so I shouldn't say demolished because I think I, I'm optimistic that it will stand and be reaffirmed more strongly than ever. Good to hear from you guys. So uh, Spencer Siegel, David Sachs, both first year law students at Stanford, Federalist Society members and excellent ambassadors of the conservative legal movement. I think your moderation, your moderation and your, your empathy uh, and and your balance uh, and your uh, coolness of commitment to the law and you're you're not making yourselves into victims and you're not ranting and raving and casting aspersions. You present yourselves very well. So I'm proud of you, David. <laughs> Thank you, Professor. <laughs> I'm going to sign off here at the Glenn Show. Thanks a lot to Spencer Siegel and to David Sachs. Thanks, Professor. <laughs>